this might be one of the, or the hardest sermon I've had to preach uh, since I have began preaching. This message is going to be heavier than normal, simply because the Bible holds nothing back uh, when it comes to the scars left by sin. Um, as we go through the text this morning, there are going to be some scars that, are, that might be reopened um, that you have experienced before. Maybe you know someone that has experienced uh, some of the things that we're going to talk about. The chapters that we're going to cover today are ugly. There's no way to get around it. And this is how we know the Bible's true, right? It does not leave anything out. It puts it all out there. Um, Today, we will cover an incident of sexual assault. Uh, We will cover some rather graphic, violent moments. Um, We will talk about the absent father, David. And I have chosen to not skip over um, many portions. There are some portions that we'll kind of, we'll move quickly through. Um, But I think that God's word is sufficient for us. If at any point you get overwhelmed, um, feel free to just walk out into the hallway, um, catch your breath. That is okay. Um, speaking for myself, this text opened up some wounds from my life in regards to my relationship with my uh, father. So I want you to know that you're not alone, that everyone in here are going to feel the impact in some way or another. The last thing I want to do is re-traumatize you in some way, but I know that God never opens a scar that he does not intend to heal. God never opens a scar that he does not intend to heal. So my encouragement to you as we walk through this is to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit, what he wants to do with you, and press into God's word even if it seems difficult. Now right here at the beginning, I'm going to read two sections of scripture, and I'm actually just going to ask you to look at those on the screen. Um, It's not where we're going to start, but I want to give you the end, um, but where we started before we start at the beginning, because I want to show you hope um, before we even jump in uh, to 2 Samuel 12. So I'm going to read to you uh, 2 Samuel 15.30 and Luke 22.39. They'll be on the screen. 2 Samuel 15.30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. Talking about Jesus, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, "Pray that you may not enter into temptation." And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, "Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he, agony. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Uh, Well, I was was sad to miss last week. Uh, Katie and I got the opportunity to get away for the weekend with our sister, or her sister and our brother-in-law, but I heard you guys had a great time. I'm so thankful for Matt. Um, I got to listen to the sermon on Tuesday, and I was filled with so much joy on how he handled a rather difficult text, and so if you have not... um, you know, gone over to him and just said, thank you for, that's so encouraging to us, just so you know, um, just the, the small things of um, confidence boosters to, to let us know that, that not for our sake, but what we do is hard, and what you do is hard, but shepherding is heavy, and so encourage our elders as much as you can, uh, just as we want to encourage you, but he did a great job, and I'm so uh, thankful for him. So here's what's going to happen today. 
I'm going to walk us through through, uh, through the events of several chapters in 2 Samuel 12. Uh, there will be a couple moments where we're going to pause and talk about what's immediately happening right there to address some specific topics. But then at the end, I'm going to rush through it rather quickly and just kind of give you the broad topic, and then we're going to make some observations about the scriptures, okay? And so we're going to walk through and summarize, and then we're going to stop, and we're going to make some observations about what we just talked about. So that is the plan. Just wanted to give you that beforehand. So last week, we had the story of David and Bathsheba. Okay, that story ends with David confessing his sin and the prophet Nathan telling David in 2 Samuel 12, 13, it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So Last week ended with God forgiving David, which is good. But God tells David three things, three consequences of David's sin. And you're going to see these play out in our scriptures today. 2 Samuel 12, 10, now for, uh, Nathan tells David, Now for, therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you on your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Verse 14, nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. I heard a quote that I found interesting this week, and it was, you can be forgiven of sin, but you can't unsin. You can be forgiven of sin, but you can't Sin. God told David, hey, you are forgiven, which some of you need to hear that. That's where you need to start. If you've confessed your sin to the Lord and repented of that sin, you need to know that you are forgiven. It's gone. As far as the east is from the west, your sin is gone. It is paid for. You are forgiven. The first step to true healing and experiencing God's grace is believing that God has actually forgiven you of your sin. But there is another reality. My sin, your sin, does have practical consequences in our lives. Some of you know this truth very well, that you have brought upon much pain in your life and in the lives of those around you because of your sin. And you feel that weight, that although you are forgiven, you feel the weight of the consequences of sins and of your sins. And in the next five, six chapters, we are going to see the consequences of David's sin. His family is going to shatter into pieces. It's a tragic story of how your sin can impact those around you. And starting in chapter 13, we get some of the most difficult scriptures in all of our Bible to read. So this next moment, I just want to warn you, is heavy. It's difficult to read, but let's remember that Scripture is here to instruct us and to equip us and to reveal to us it is for our good. So in 2 Samuel 13, we find David's firstborn son, Amnon. He's the heir to the throne. The text says in verse 1, it says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Now, this love that the text mentions would be better translated as lust here. There are so many issues with just that first, first scripture, right? Um, it's not love that Amnon has, it's lust. Tamar, first of all, was Amnon's half-sister. Same dad, different moms. David has a complicated family. That happens when you marry multiple wives, just a warning, okay? 
Um, multiple half-sisters all over the place. Um, and so Amnon comes up with a plan. He wants to get Tamar alone. So he comes up with a plan. He pretends to be sick, and he says that only a meal from Tamar is going to make him feel better. So Tamar makes him a meal. And then we pick up in verse 11, chapter 13. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And as for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. It it was legal to marry a half-sibling during this time. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So the word rape is actually used in Hebrew. The word communicates the idea of aggressive violence. Go down to verse 15. This is after Amnon rapes her. You get this moment. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Verse 17, He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door. After. Here's the thing about this verse, verse 17. The English translation adds the word woman, okay? English has to add it to the sentence for the sentence to make sense. You've got to understand the heaviness and the brutality of this moment. The word woman is not in the original Hebrew manuscripts. So here's what Amnon really says. He says, take this out of my presence. The Hebrew word this isn't even referring to a person. It's referring to an object. Take this thing out of my presence. In this moment, he dehumanizes her. He doesn't even see her as a person. So not only has he violated her physically and emotionally, traumatized her for the rest of her life. You see what was happening in verse 16 there. Um, that's referring to the idea that by her, him doing this to her and sending her away, she can never marry She is now unclean. So he has violated her in so many ways. So let me address the tragic elephant in the room. The same sin that was done against Tamar continues today. I have no doubt that even in a room as small as this, that there are some of you in here that have experienced what we just read. Or you know someone very close to you who has. So let me just say this in I don't even know how to say it, but just as simply as I can, if you have been the victim of a sexual assault, abuse, rape, we want you to know that we see you and we're so glad that you're here. Your God sees you. He has not left you. We hate what was done to you. God despises what was done to you. Our deepest longing is that you would belong to a community of people who point you to Jesus. I would not dare to speak to you as if I understand what you went through. No one here does. But your God does. And I want you to know that we're so glad that you're here. Our desire is that this is a safe space for you. We cannot heal you. Jesus can. And so we want to point you to him. That's our hope. Something else I want to mention about these verses. Because most of us will blow past this moment and say, oh, man, yeah, that's really tough. 
but I've never done anything like that. I'm never going to do anything like that. But here's what I want us to think about. Let's consider for a moment the root of Amnon's sin. There are too many men in churches, and honestly, it's not just men anymore. Um, There are too many Christians who tolerate and indulge the root of Amnon's sin when we objectify the image bearers of God for our own lust and pleasure. Those moments when you are looking at a screen and using someone who is made in the image of God to satisfy your own lust are more serious than you think they are. You are dehumanizing them in that moment. They are no longer a woman. In your eyes, you are turning them into a this so that you can be temporarily satisfied by your flesh. In those moments, they are an object for your pleasure. So I'm talking directly to those who continue to live a secret life of pornography consumption. The seed of Amnon continues today. The instinct that we see in Amnon is the same instinct that you have when you turn on a screen and make someone an object for your pleasure. So let's think about this. Do you really think that your secret life of sin does not affect you, does not affect the people around you? Does that affect how you view God, how you view women, even how you view yourself? And I want to say this as strongly but as graciously as I can and as humanly possible. God sees your secret life, and he calls to you. Come out of the darkness and into the light. Jesus is better. He's so much better. He's far more satisfying. He's far more glorious. And his promises to you, they actually last Finding satisfaction in objectifying a woman for your pleasure, that doesn't last. It will leave you with nothing but shame and disconnect from your family, from your friends, and from the Lord. If even the smallest seat of Amnon dwells within any of us, I implore us to kill it. John Owen said, you are killing sin or it is killing you. One of those two things are happening. Either sin is killing you or you are killing it. Don't believe the lie that the sin of pornography only affects you. It doesn't. Now, back to our text. What do you think David did when he heard about what happened to his daughter Tamar? Surely he's going to lay the hammer down, right? He's going to be on the side of the justice, verse 31 in chapter 13. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Oh, well, that's good. David's angry. That's a good start. Yay, David, right? Well, as you read on, that's it. That's all that we know of. That's all, according to Scripture, that happened. David gets mad, but he does absolutely nothing. He never reaches out to Tamar. He never confronts Amnon. We don't know why. Maybe he was too busy with his kingly duties. Maybe he felt like he would be a hypocrite if he were to confront Amnon. After all, he did the same thing to Bathsheba. Maybe he was just an apathetic father. We don't know. But at the end of the day, what you have in David is a dad who is walking around angry but doing nothing about it. And sadly, we have a lot of those. we got a lot of keyboard warriors who are angry about a lot of things, but they don't actually do anything. He's passive when it comes to his children and to his kingly rule. And because of David's passivity, Absalom takes charge. He tells her, Tamar in verse 20, right before, says her brother Absalom said to her, gosh, this verse gets me, y'all. Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? 
Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. How's she not going to take that to heart? And he says, so Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. Absalom silences her, something we still see today in churches all over the place. The churches, uh, leaders will silence the abuse of a woman so they don't have to deal with the fallout. And like many victims, she did what she was told. The word desolate means to be stunned or devastated. She was stunned and devastated by what was done to her. Absalom begins to take justice into his own hands. He plots his revenge. He lures Amnon away from the palace, and he murders Amnon. He doesn't do it for Tamar. He murders Amnon for his own gain and selfish reasons. If it would have been about Tamar and her healing, he would have done it very differently. He would have done things very differently. And after Absalom murders Amnon, he has to flee the country for three years. And David and Absalom's relationship is now broken. David eventually invites Absalom uh, to come back home, but he refuses to even acknowledge that Absalom exists. And David will not be in the presence of his son for two more years. So that makes it five years since David has even interacted with his son, Absalom. In chapter 14, Absalom sets a field on fire. I don't know if you read this. This is a crazy moment. He sets a field on fire trying to get his dad's attention. It's the ultimate kid acting out moment. So just be glad that your kids are just kicking toys. Absalom's setting fields on fire, okay? Um, He's like, you won't talk to me? Fine, I'll just light this up. David finally agrees to see him, but it's just a ceremonial meeting. Lacks any kind of intimacy. Um, And so Absalom makes the decision to overthrow his father and take the throne of the kingdom for himself. Now, a few things to note about Absalom that that are helpful to know. Uh, First, the text tells us that he had beautiful long hair, that his hair weighed several uh, pounds. Apparently, he was a good-looking dude. We are told that he is politically gifted. He was smooth with his words. Chapter 15 tells us that he would stand outside of the palace, and when people would come to make a dispute before King David, uh, Absalom would say, basically, uh, hey, look, the king doesn't have time for you. He would say things like, oh, if I were judge um, of this land, then I would have time for your disputes. When people would bow down to him he, and show him respect as the king's son, he would put his hand on them and he would show affection. He's like, I'm just one of you, brother. And then chapter 15, verse 6 says that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And when the time was right, he rebelled against David and he drives David out of the palace, he leads a coup, and then he sets up, this is, this is what Nathan was referring to, he sets up an area on the roof of the palace where he will sleep with all of David's wives and concubines. It was intended to be a humiliation of David. So by the end of chapter 15, Absalom has stolen David's kingdom, his house, and his wives. The irony is that Absalom is doing all this from the roof of the palace, the place where David's sin with Bathsheba began. The son is repeating the father's sins. David's absolutely devastated at this point, verse 30. But David went up the ascent to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. He's barefoot, head covered, weeping. All symbols of defeat and humiliation. He has lost everything. In chapter 18, David retakes his kingdom, and Absalom and his followers are driven out. David's men chase after them, and as they chase, David gives his men specific instructions in 2 Samuel 18.5. says, The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Dear gently for my sake with the young man, Absalom. 
And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And as Absalom is fleeing through the forest, his hair gets caught in a tree, and he's left suspended in the air. Just one more reason not to have long hair, right? (laughs) David's men surround him, and the men say, hey, we've been given specific instructions not to hurt him. But Joab, who's a bad, bad dude, Joab says, no, we can't leave him alive. He'll just do it again. So he takes three javelins and puts all of them through Absalom and kills him. As news travels back to David, one of the soldiers was asked about Absalom. Um, when asked about Absalom, tells David in 2 Samuel 18.32, it says, the king said to the Cushite, Cushite it is, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And verse 33 is one of the most gut-wrenching scenes of David's life. 2 Samuel 18.33, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's the first time in all of 2 Samuel that David uses the title son for Absalom. Repetition of a phrase in Hebrew is their version of all caps, right? Um, you know, if you're older in the room and you ever text and you're like, hey, how's your day going? But it's in all cap. Did you know that it sounds like, hey, how's your day going? That's the Hebrew version of repeating things, okay? It's meant to intensify emotion. My son, my son, my son. Five times. David is devastated. And at the end of these chapters, we see David's family shattered and himself in mourning. A few observations. I know that was a quick overview. Number one, from this text, one observation we can make, and this is for the parents in the room, be very careful what you sow into the lives of your children. Your kids are watching you, and they do have a deep desire to be like you. Now, just a caveat. It's true. I don't have children. Uh, Katie and I would be filled with joy if you would join us in praying that God would bring us a child. But I have been a son all my life. Um, I've worked with countless junior high, high school, and college students. I've seen over and over how your relationship with your kids shaped them. And in these chapters, we see that what David models is multiplied in his children. Now, does every kid mimic the actions of their parents as they grow up? No, I am proof of that. And is it true that you can model a godly life to your children only for them to reject it? Absolutely. But more times than not, what I have seen is that what you model for your children, they will follow in some way. So the question, I think, and this is for everyone in the room, not just the parents, whether you have kids or not, The question is, what habits do you have in your life right now that those around you are tempted to follow you in? This applies to everyone. Galatians 6, 7. I love this text. Uh, Paul says, do not be deceived. It should be on the screen. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The idea that Paul is communicating is that if you sow habits of sin into your life, that sin will grow and multiply into corruption. That when we sow habits of sin, 
those, those sins, those habits, they choke out any hope for spiritual life in us. And we see this biblical truth play out in David's life. David sows lust, betrayal, murder, and it multiplies in his children. So make no mistake, parents, your kids are watching you, and they are imitating you in ways that you probably don't even realize. I cannot count the amount of times I have heard a teenager or a 20-something justify their sin by saying, well, my parents do it. I don't think it's a big deal that my dad cusses or that I cuss. My dad did it. My, my dad talks to my mom like that. It's not that big of a deal. I, when I was 19, I'd just gotten into ministry. I went to a conference, and the this, this speaker came up, and I'll never forget this. I don't remember who he was. I just remember this one line that he said. He made the comment, do you want to know what's really happening in the lives of the adults in your church? He said, get to know your children. The hard truth is that your sin is often modeled in and repeated by your children. The idols that you worship could become their idols, idols of success. How do you respond when you fail? What do you model for them? Do you crawl in a hole and think that you're the worst person in the world? Do you blame others for your failure? Do you think that's not going to be repeated by them? Idols of money, idols of self, and whatever idol you have, there is potential that you will see that idol in them. Now, is every sin in your kid your fault? Absolutely not. That's crazy talk. But the question that I think is good for you to ponder is, how are you positioning your family to create habits of grace and not habits of sin? The salvation of your children is not up to you. Newsflash. You have no power over whether or not they love Jesus or not. Their salvation is up to God. He alone has the power to save. Your kids will grow up to make their own decisions. Sometimes those decisions will be better than the decisions you made. Praise God, right? Sometimes those decisions will be worse than the decisions that you made. But that does not mean that you do not have any influence over them. You cannot save them, but you can position them to know and to hear from God. So the question is, what are you sowing into the lives of those around you? Will you sow habits of grace or habits of flesh? When God saved me in high school, I came to my dad, who is not a believer. Um, I came to my dad, and I said, hey, dad, I just want to let you know that I'm getting baptized this Sunday. I was super excited to tell him. Uh, my dad and I were pretty close growing up. We watched, like, every Spurs game together, Astros games. I mean, we, we were pretty close. And so I told him, hey, I'm getting baptized this Sunday. And he looked at me, and he laughed. And that moment changed the trajectory of our lives. A year later, he left my mom for another woman, and I vowed that I would never talk to him again. Three years later, I'm at Mary Hunt Baylor as a student, and I looked down at my phone, and I saw his name on the caller ID, and I ignored it. And that was a decision that I would have to live with for the rest of my life. Because the next day, I got a phone call that my dad had committed suicide. And that scar still remains today. And as I have worked through that with God and with friends and with counselors over the last 20 years, here's the best way I've found to describe it. I was running as a high school student. I was running towards Jesus as fast as I could. I wanted him. And I so deeply wanted my best friend, my dad, to come with me. And he said, no, thank you. All I wanted from him was to say, I'm in, Colton. I want to run this race with you. So fathers, husbands, young men, if I could plead with you, run the race of faith with your kids. 
Run the race of faith with your kids. Don't just run it, but be in front. When they want to quit, when they want to give up, when they give up on themselves, when they start drifting into the ditch, be the one that grabs their hands and says, no, let me point you towards Jesus. No matter how far gone they are, you pray and you model for them what it looks like to love Jesus. Be the one that tries to grab their hand and says, no, I'm not going to point you towards me. I'm going to point you towards him. I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that you will never regret pointing to Jesus, pointing your family to Jesus. You will regret your apathy towards Jesus. And in our story, David didn't run the race of faith in these chapters. He didn't aim his kids towards the glory and the love of God. He aimed his kids towards habits of sin. He sowed corruption. There are a lot of moments in failure in these scriptures, scriptures, both by David and by his sons. Like moments everywhere where you're just like, somebody stop this. Like someone's going to step up, right? David's going to step up. One of his sons is going to step up. Someone's going to step up and stop this madness. Break the cycle. There's one moment that really sticks out to me. I kept thinking about this over and over. It's the moment when David finds out what happens to Tamar. I read it for you earlier. When it says, when King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. He gets angry, but man, the scriptures that follow, David does absolutely nothing. His passivity and indifference is tragic. Like, I just wonder, I wonder, what would have happened if David would have stepped in as a loving and strong father and cared for Tamar? If he would have pursued justice for what had been done to her in the right way? What if he would have brought her into his home instead of leaving her desolate in Absalom's? If he would have confronted Absalom and instructed him about what godly justice looks like? Or what if David had, would have reconciled with Absalom instead of ignoring him for five years? I mean, maybe Absalom wouldn't have went out on a rampage, started a rebellion. All the dude wanted was his father's attention. The silence of David in these chapters is a strong warning for all of us. It's no different than the silence that we see from Adam in Genesis 3. When Eve sets out to eat the fruit of the tree, where's David? He's right there with her, right next to her, and he's silent. He watched her eat that fruit. And when God shows up after they eat of the fruit, Adam and Eve hide, Adam and, Eve hide and God calls out to them. But who does God call out to? Genesis 3, 9, but the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Adam, where are you? Here's the question I want to ask David, and I'm sure all of us want to ask David this. When Tamar was abused, David, where were you? When Tamar was desolate, where were you? When Absalom went to take justice into his own hands, where were you? He was silent, apathetic, and disconnected. So here's our second observation. We see from these chapters that we desperately need someone to break the pattern of silence that leads to brokenness. We desperately need someone to break the pattern of silence that leads to brokenness. Do not be silent about your sin. Confess it. Repent of it. Fight it. Kill it. Don't be silent with your affection. You know, one of the greatest myths of our culture is that men are not wired to be affectionate. You ever said that or heard that? Well, I'm just not wired that way. I'm just a logical person. Um, That's a lie. Did you know that? That's a lie. 
You were literally designed in the image of God to display the love and affection to those around you that your father has shown with you. He loves you and he tells you about it in his word. Tell your spouse that you love them and why you love them. Tell your kids, tell your friends, tell the people around you. Show them who God is by doing to them what God has done with you. And he has told you how much he loves you. He reminds you over and over. Stop being silent about your marriage problems and acting like everything's okay. That's so easy to do. I've been there. <laughs> and I, I read something this week, said that the majority, when, when, when married couples get, have issues, 80% of the time or 85% of the time, it's the wife who makes the call to set up marriage counseling. Listen, when your marriage is on the brink of divorce, it shouldn't be your spouse, men, that make the arrangements for marriage counseling. And they shouldn't have to drag you there either. You want to model something worthy of modeling to your kids? Model what it looks like to love your wife like Christ loves the church. You make every phone call you can and you do whatever you can because it's worth fighting for. Don't be silent about the gospel. Jesus is too good and too glorious to be quiet about it. Um, I also read something this week that was interesting. Um, The question was, why are more and more Christian books being written for women than there are for men? You know what the answer was? Because only 10% of men read Christian books. So now when a Christian author wants to write a book aimed towards men, the publishers are rejecting them because men don't buy Christian books. Did you know that 80% of single missionaries are women? Here's one that's practical for our church, and I'm going to change my tone on this one because I don't want to shame anyone. I'm trying to be gracious here. Um, Did you know that 90% of our renewal kids team are women? I don't mention that to shame you into serving, but to expose the reality. I'm so thankful for everyone on our kids team, but we have a gaping hole in our kids ministry, and it's men sowing habits of grace into our children. We've got to break the cycle of silent men. David didn't break the cycle. David's sons didn't break the cycle. David is passive. Amnon is abusive. Absalom is silent. And listen, man, men, aren't you so tired of hearing sermons about how awful you are? I mean, this week I was writing this, and I just felt exhausted. It's like, God, haven't we heard this before? Uh, I almost went a completely different route. So I was like, they've all heard this. Men, you're supposed to lead. You're not. Be better. That message never works. It just never works. We always go back to the same place. The message of, you are terrible, just be better, try harder, never works. And here's why it never works. Because it's not biblical. It's not biblical. The message of, you're not good enough, you just need to try harder, never works because it's not in the Bible. So here's what I'll say to the men. Fathers, husbands, future fathers, husbands, future the men who are growing up, whatever. Breaking the cycle starts with understanding that you don't have the power to just be better. You cannot will yourself to just change. You don't have the power to just go, you know what, I'm going to stop looking at pornography today. You're you're not going to do it. You're going to be back to the same place. It never works. And here's the good news of these chapters. The failure of these men in these scriptures only solidify our need for a new man. A new man that would stand in our place and break the cycle of silence. And that leads to our final observation, that a new man has come. And in his name, the cycle of silence has been broken. When you're incapable of being a better man, the good news for you is that a new man has come in your place. 
As David flees from Jerusalem, he's barefoot, head covered, weeping, perfect picture of failure. There's this small detail in there that is revealing. I showed it to you at the very beginning, verse 30. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. Why does the author give us detail about where David is in this moment? Because years later, the ascent of the Mount of Olives would be renamed the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, the son of David, would walk that same path, weeping, sweating drops of blood. Unlike David, it wasn't his own sin that drove him there. It was our sin. And that son of David, unlike Absalom, would not be silent. He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup. Remove your wrath. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Remember when David said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. What did he say? Would I have died instead of you? Think about that. David wanted to die for his son's sins, and he couldn't. But years later, Jesus, the son of David, could die for Absalom's sins, and he did. And he carried the grief of Tamar on the cross, and he carries your grief and my grief, and he kills our sins in that place. He died for David, for Absalom, and he carried the grief of the Tamars in the world on the cross. You want to break the silence about sin in your life? You want to break the silence when it comes to your marriage? You don't look to yourself. You look to the one who gave the loudest shout heard in all of history, the one who said, it is finished. And when that happened, in that moment, first he canceled the debt of the repentant sinner. Your sin is no more. It's gone as far as the east is from the west. And second, he broke the power that sin has over you, that sin can silence you no longer. Because listen, your sin has no power over you. Listen, you don't have to sow seeds that breed corruption. You don't have to look at pornography. You don't have to be apathetic because he's canceled the power of that sin over you. Just because your marriage is a mess doesn't mean that it has to end. I'm a living testimony of that. He canceled our debt, and he canceled the power of sin that created that debt. So first, let me say, if you've never put your faith in Christ, you need to know that right now, as you're listening to his word, you know if he's chasing after you. You feel it in your bones that he's coming to get you and that you're his. So you just need to tell someone, hey, he came and got me. Second, I would say that most of us in here have embraced the reality that Jesus has canceled our debt, but also that there are many of us who have not embraced the reality that he cancels the power over our debt. And we believe this lie that our sin is more powerful than the almighty God and there's no hope. Listen, your sin is not more powerful than the almighty God. He is the alpha and omega, the creator of the stars, the mountain and the seas, the God who died and rose from the grave. He's sovereign. And your sin is not more powerful than he is. So, Listen, you want to break the silence? You can't do it on your own. But the good news is that you have one who did it for you. And honestly, men, your job is not to lead. You hear that language so much. You just need to lead your family. You just need to lead. You just need to lead. You just need to lead. And you crumble under that pressure because you are not designed to be the leader of your family. Who is? Jesus is. Gosh, man, that message... It kills us. 
because we think it's about me. My family needs to look to me. They need to look to me. They need to look to me. And I fail and I fail. Yeah, you're going to fail every time. But when you fail, do you point them to him? Do you point their eyes towards Jesus, the better man? He's better than you, in case you didn't know. Grab the hands of your spouse and your kids and your friends and say, let's run towards Jesus. Thank <laughs> you.